everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Latovsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And we're back! It has been about two months, I think. Everybody needed a little hiatus from podcasting, it seems. A lot of our friends have, have been doing the same as well. We thought we were back for the holiday episode, and then that turned out to just be a blip. <laughs> well, we were back for that. And we also immediately launched into watching something with the intent of doing the next episode, but we actually watched it now about a month ago, which was The Wicker Man and The Wicker Man. All the Wicker Men. So we're still going to do that. And since it's uh, the first one anyway, such a horror classic. And uh, just to give a little bit of background, this all happened because before that, one night we were looking for something to watch. We went to the usually reliable shutter for something interesting and uh, found Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror, which was a sprawling documentary that I'd seen uh, reporting on months earlier than that and thought, oh, this might be interesting. And it's like a look at the folk horror phenomenon that covers all of the various bucolic English villages, you know, just... Uh, dealing with satanic rituals and everything. You know, folksy charm. And we watched it, and it was like, oh, well, this is a three-hour and 15-minute documentary, <laughs> so we'll watch a bit of it. And then we kept watching it, and then my eyes started burning, and then we were like, should we finish this tonight? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever. And uh, we watched the whole thing in one sitting. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we kind of thought, oh, we'll watch like half and half, like two movie-length sittings. But then I guess we were so kind of wrapped up in it that once we got like two and a half hours in, we were just sort of like, eh, let's just let's get it through to the end. Especially because it, it kind of, I think, focuses, at least in the start, exclusively on like the British folk experience of horror and then kind of delves into America and then sort of the last third or so goes broadly international where they're kind of frenetically touching on a lot of other countries we'll say I, overall obviously we enjoyed it enough to want to sit through the whole thing at once so it, they did a nice job it has a nice atmosphere i i think we both like the fact that when they did discuss other cultures they seemed to work really hard to try to find someone who was indigenous to a given country or location mm -hmm. to speak on behalf of that culture so it wasn't just a bunch of white men talking heads saying, and another thing about Japan, you know, there was there was a real attempt to try to showcase the different cultures. However, I would say that, I mean, really, even more so than the third, maybe it comes out to almost feeling more like a quarter. I mean, it, mm. it's still really predominantly a white European and largely white English yeah. review of, of this kind of material. And they try to cover other regions, but really that's done almost as a footnote when any one of those obviously could carry an entire documentary on its own. It's a whole other culture. It's tricky. It's a lot of times we see things that are a series and we kind of lament, like, why can't that just be a movie? And I think this is an example of something where it would have actually been interesting to me to see a whole series of one-hour installments right. about a certain country, region, culture, even religion. Yes. There are a lot of elements to it. And, you know, you could have, they could have done it maybe more 
regionally so that you don't necessarily feel like you have to do an episode per country. But I, I do think it could have been a bit longer and segmented. And in keeping with the idea that the only way to truly balance like the pendulum is to swing it wide in the other direction, I think it would have made a lot more sense to do this as a series and then devote just one episode to English horror and then another Japanese, then another that, so that rather than 50 hours of English horror and half an hour of everything else, mm -hmm. it's like, why should that get any more just because we're familiar with it? But, I mean, having said all that, we enjoyed it. It was interesting. Very much so. It, it for me, I mean, for both of us, with varying degrees of familiarity with different aspects of it, I think it helped us both to put a lot of other things in context. I think I know a bit more about some of the Hammer and Amicus stuff prior. So, like, it kicked off immediately. Fans will know what I mean. Like, it kicked off immediately with, like, Linda Hayden from Blood on Satan's Claw. And it's like, okay, I know that. And, like, and putting it into context, it's like, oh, I see. This is part of this tradition. So, it's like, there were some things that I already knew of as horror classics, but I never really saw them in the larger context of this all fits within this mm -hmm. narrative. Um, and uh, what they also, the Witchfinder General, I think, was the Vincent Price one they talked yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, they get more and more obscured down to a lot of, like, British TV movies. Yeah, there were a lot that I'd never heard of. And, like, when you grow up a Doctor Who fan and, like, an Anglophile, you figure, well, I've covered this. I didn't. Children of the Stones, I expected to pop For up. For sure. Um, so I knew that was going to come. But there were, like, three or four others, and they all were, like, their... Um, like the BBC or the British TV equivalent of like movie of the week where mm -hmm. they weren't, they were TV movies and I'd never heard of a lot of them and some of them look kind of intriguing. So, and I think that's know. the reason why ultimately both of us kind of wished there was more time and sort of detailed care spent to full car from other regions, because obviously, you know, they started with what they know and what they know is British full car is what mm -hmm. they're putting together and it was quite the deep dive. And then everything else was sort of like frantically swimming through it to make sure you get to the other shore. But it's like they could have gone a little deeper into it. So and it was also interesting seeing um, the larger context and then all the things that we're aware of from other aspects. Like it was almost inevitable that this was going to cover the more recent trend in. A24 produced slow burn horror like The Witch, which was one of the first movies you and I saw together. And and we have, I mean, we've joked about it many times. In all seriousness, we both have very low opinions of a lot of what most people seem to regard as like a new golden age and like sophisticated intellectual horror, which I think is anything but. I think a lot of these movies are extremely derivative, bereft of any real content, and using a sleight-of-hand technique to make people believe that they're cleverer than they are. And also, for me, bothers me a lot that there's a lot of movies in that genre that are stories about women that center around women's experiences that are written and directed by men. And... I just don't think you get to hold these up as like this paragon in the same way. Um, we, I mean, it wasn't just us with the witch. Like, I don't know what theaters other people went to. We're going on a tangent, just a slight one. Well, but we're never going to do a whole episode. On we it, are that's not for sure. And the theater we were in, as soon as the lights came up, somebody like down 
the other end of the row from us was actually snoring because they had fallen asleep. And the woman sitting directly in front of me as the lights come up started laughing hysterically and like maniacally and turned to the person next to her that she'd come with and basically said like, well, they got me. Like they got me to spend money on this and Mm -hmm. like thought it was such a waste. Yeah. And it was just sort of the universal experience in the theater we were in where you get to the end and you're like, really? Yeah. What's that like to live deliciously? So I mean. There's a lot of that stuff. And look, here's the thing. In an effort to be fair, which I think we really try to do, it's like a lot of this is subjective. It's too easy to fall into a trap, and I've been someone that did that many times over the years, especially when you start getting like a label expert applied to you. It's easy to start thinking like, well, obviously my opinion matters more. It's like, but also as a teacher, I try to tell people that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And it's like there are plenty of people who really love these movies and really respect them. I will never be able to be on the same uh, page with them about that. And I can only point out the things that I think are wrong about them. But you might be a fan of The Witch and say that what I think is like pretense of cleverness is real cleverness or that the atmosphere is wonderful. And to be fair, the movie looks visually amazing. Very pretty film. It's a very well made (laughs) movie that way. But so all these things together. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say one of the things we really try not to do in sort of a general term is not to yuck anyone else's yum is sort of like if we don't like something but you do like it like that's totally cool i think the thing that like kind of bristles both of us a little bit about movies like the witch is you get a lot of people who will say if you don't like this then you just don't get it or you don't get horror you're not a real fan and i think that's just as damaging both to like the community as a whole and to like actual criticism and critique of media. It's sort of like, this did not work for me. It did not work for you. It didn't work for the laughing lady who was sitting in front of us or the guy who fell asleep. It's also okay if it did work for you, but the fact that it worked for you and not for me doesn't mean that either of us is like a bigger or lesser fan of horror that one of us didn't get it and the other one did it's just not every film works for everybody so having said all of that the experience of watching that documentary which was filled throughout with clips from the wicker man Mm -hmm. made us kind of look at each other at one point i think and say so should we just watch the wicker man finally and do that for and and the weird thing is, again, it's one of those things where I think if you're a horror fan, you know the Wicker Man. You also know how it ends. I mean, it's... it's I a, knew how it ended going in. Yeah, I mean, I and, and so here, full spoilers. If you don't know how the Wicker Man ends, stop right now, watch it, and come back. And I'm, by all means, watch it because it's wonderful. I'm jealous if you don't know how the Wicker Man ends and you have the opportunity to just watch it right now. So yeah. <laughs> please I do never, that on our behalf. Never had that. My entire life... As a horror fan, I've all, always already known the yeah. basic plot and how it ended. So seeing it for the first time with you now, we we knew where it was going. We'd seen where it was going. And in fact, having just watched the documentary, the documentary shows you the last shot of the movie. So, <laughs> it shows you where it's going. But but I think that's fair because the documentary expects that you know a lot of the things that you're, at least from mm-hmm. your own personal perspective, going in. So we thought, okay, let's finally do this. Let's fill in a gap in, in like our major 
our history card because neither one of us had ever seen the Wicker Man. Crazy, right? Especially me. I'm talking about all these classic horror movies. I've never seen the Wicker Man. I've only seen clips and knew everything about the plot through to the ending. So I thought, okay, let's do that. Do sit down, Sergeant. Socks are so much better absorbed with the knees bent. Crazier still is that I had never seen the original Wicker Man, but I had seen the Nick Cage Wicker Man remake. Strangely, I don't know how I saw one, but not the other. So I also knew a lot of the story beats that were coming up throughout having seen the remake. But I think maybe for both of us, knowing where it ended made us feel like we'd seen the Wicker Man and maybe just we didn't seek it out or hadn't thought to go watch it. Um, I, I guess if I thought about it, I would say there's an element of knowing everything I know about it. There might have been a part of me thinking, well, is it worth going through the journey at all? Or can I just safely sit here and feel like, well, I got that covered. And I figured well, one day I'd like to see it at least once. So, And I'm very glad we did. Because this, sure. this is one of those things I think we both agree. It lived up to its reputation. While I cannot say it's a movie I could see revisiting a lot, I definitely think I could see revisiting it a bit because one of the things we loved the most about it was the atmosphere and the the sort of feeling of being on that island for a while. Mm. We decided we're going to watch that, and since you'd seen the remake, I decided I had to also see the Nick Cage one that I'd <laughs> never seen, but that anybody that knows anything about being on the internet knows had become a bit of a an internet sensation for years afterward, thanks to lots of gifts lifted from the movie and elements of that film that apparently took on a life of their own. How to get burned? How to get burned? How to get burned? How to get burned? I don't know. Tell me. A lot uh, of spoofs as well. Yeah. And... Um, I think the thing that I did see prior was a few years ago where you showed me the re-edited trailer for the remake that uses uh, walking on sunshine to make it a rom-com. Right. So I knew that bit, which also meant that I knew how often he punches people because they threw all the punching. <laughs> we'll get to all of that in a bit. So, so we decided to do The Wicker Man. And as you pointed out right away, one of the first, oh, so let me step back. So The Wicker Man, I'm sure that most anybody listening to this probably already knows, but I'll do the basic. 1973, so we're in a great era in general for horror and, and just filmmaking in general. Starring Ed Woodward, who uh, children of the 80s might remember being the equalizer on television. That's right, folks. Long before Denzel Washington. And who is doing it right now? Is it Queen Latifah doing it now? Television? Oh, yeah. I, we, um, you know, we watch so little network television yeah, that the only time we get the info about it is when my parents tell us yeah. something that they've watched. Denzel Washington did the, a couple movies. And yeah. then Queen Latifah is doing the revival. And on I think TV. unlike some revivals i don't think it takes place in the same continuity oh. but edward woodward was the equalizer and and then of course another thing is we're huge fans of hot fuzz which owes a lot of its existence to the wicker man and why wouldn't it it's steeped in references to nigel neal and you know english villages having a conspiracy and the of course, idyllic countryside yeah. and of course the beauty of it is wicker man star ed woodward is in it as the guy who runs the neighborhood watch so there he is you know, on the other side of the equation. and that, Although it's still kind of being like a cop. So, yeah. Um, it also stars Britt Eklund, Ingrid Pitt, who anybody that saw any of the Hammer vampire movies remembers well. And, of course, Christopher Lee. One of the towering icons of horror, both literally and figuratively, Christopher <laughs> Lee. 
And again, I was very happy to see that everything I'd ever heard about this being one of his iconic roles, one I hadn't seen in comparison to stuff like Dracula and Saruman and, you know, even Count Dooku and otherwise forgettable films. Lord Summerall definitely lived up to expectations. And one of the things we also learned when we were reading up on it is that this was his passion project. He 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 got personally mm-hmm. so passionate about a few things. Lord of the Rings, of course, was another one of his personal passions was, you know, knowing those books backward and forward and all that. But this, yeah, he apparently was uh, a key figure in getting this made and had actually... Um, like he's the one who optioned the book rights because yeah. it was based sort yeah. of loosely on a book. Yeah. So, okay. So this is based on a David Pinner novel from 1967 called Ritual. I know nothing about the book, however. But I just am going to throw in that one of our little side joys uh, that we uh, have on the internet on a regular basis is their Twitter account that I'm... Uh, very happy to share with folks that might be interested too that we read all the time called men write women and it's a great account that showcases the many uh absolutely deplorable sometimes funny but funny in a sort of it's best to laugh at human nature rather than sit in the corner and cry at it uh just deplorable ways that men seem incapable of writing women in any way whatsoever approaching reality and also like completely insane like misunderstandings about how women actually functionally basic operate. biology yeah <laughs> basic biology men actually don't like apparently know and... yeah how anything on a woman's body actually works or maybe anything anywhere sadly but... uh between the time we watched the movies and be- the time today that we're recording uh david pinner's ritual actually came up on men right women i won't share the bits that they uh included from the book but I will say that in keeping with that account, one thing you find out is that Pinner apparently does not understand how a woman's body works <laughs> and attributes emotional feeling and response and actual function to parts of the body that don't do those things. <laughs> but they're all from ritual. Mm-hmm. So I, and I, I told you and I thought, oh, my God, this is where the wicker man comes from. So but I mean, one thing that account teaches you more than anything else is basically if there's anything in your life that has been formative since white men have largely been the formation of everything cultural for, say, oh, ever, uh, you're going to find out that there's something horrible in it that maybe you didn't realize. And that's just the way it is. I will say it didn't detract from our enjoyment of the movie, which really, like, seems to center women as, like, being happy and powerful and comfortably witchy in their ways. So quick, quick, uh, uh, a discussion of the basic plot setup for this yeah, again sure. <laughs> you you might know and again we're doing full spoilers all the way to the end but in this ed woodward plays sergeant howie who is uh, a police officer who comes to this island of summer isle because he's received an anonymous letter that a girl has gone missing rowan morrison he immediately discovers upon coming to this island that nobody's particularly interested in helping him that they all seem quite bemused at his approach to things uh, and that they apparently all exist in a very distinctly different culture from like main, like regular English culture, where they're they're engaging in pagan rituals, they're they're utilizing traditions and a pantheon of gods that apparently go back, you know, they're completely 
atypical to anything he's familiar with. There's a freedom of sexuality and, and body and... Oh yeah, people are just going at it in the streets at night. And like, honestly, it seems like a really awesome place to live. From the moment you encounter this island, you almost immediately get a sense that this is a fantastic place to live. It is filled with joy. It is a joyful place. Everybody seems happy. Everybody seems fulfilled. They seem to be getting along just fine. Mm -hmm. And in comes a cop with everything that that implies, especially these days. I mean, really in he comes. He's like, he has to fly there in a seaplane because like it's not accessible. It's amazing actually how, like a lot of things we've talked about, Mm -hmm. how relevant the Wicker Man is now. Yeah. You know, and in comes this representative of, you know, um, completely assumed uh, authority Mm-hmm. which he has none. I mean, he might legally, you know, have some, but it's he assumes not just governmental authority, he assumes moral and ethical authority over everyone he mm-hmm. meets. He's a devout Christian, which we're ma- it's made very clear that he is. By um, by him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot. And basically all this movie does, at least for us anyway, is seek to confirm that someone who is that way is probably one of the most hateful people you could possibly encounter. He judges everyone else for making a decision other than his own. He immediately condemns everything as being awful and sinful and terrible. I hated him from the moment he opened his mouth. Mm -hmm. There was nothing uh, remotely redeeming about him. And I was so glad that the movie was going to end with him on fire. (laughs) Because if they didn't do it, I would have done it. And I think to me, that's some of the real power of this movie, that it allows essentially the counterculture to just really stick it to authority in a way that is both absolutely insane and also wonderfully like well organized and orchestrated like it shows that people who seem to be kind of just like weird and adrift and backwards in their ways are also calculating they're organized they're all involved in like this unbelievable like farce where they carefully chose him to be the one who was going to come there because he met a whole bunch of criteria of what they were looking for. Again, like Hot Fuzz, it's like you find out at the end that this whole thing was a plan, you Mm -hmm. know, that it was always about bringing him there. It was always about him being in the Wicker Man and not her. And, and there, and yet they're so casual about it, which only underscores how clearly they have control of the situation from the moment it starts. Like there's no question None of them for a moment have any doubt this is going to end the way they want it to end. And Christopher Lee is the leader of all that as the head of this community Mm -hmm. with incredibly luxuriant hair. Oh, yes. (laughs) This amazing hair. Shiny. And uh, buoyant. Lots and lots of hair. (laughs) And and, uh, it's just, they, they, and it also, as I think we've talked about already before, you and I have been like... uh, rewatching well in my case rewatching we're watching the entire classic columbo series mm-hmm. and there are certain tropes to play here too because he is sort of like showing up to do a mystery but unlike columbo you know the the power base is completely reversed like in a columbo he shows up he's got a handle on it from the moment he shows up he probably already knows who did it the moment he shows up to or within five minutes he knows who Round did about. it 
sometimes even tells us that. In this, it's the complete reverse. The moment this guy shows up, he has no clue that he's never had any agency in this situation. And particularly Lee's performance is wonderful because he is so like delighted to just play with him for a few minutes at a time and have a conversation knowing that it doesn't matter because they've got him already. Mm -hmm. It's fine. And what of the true God, to whose glory churches and monasteries have been built on these islands for generations past? Now, sir, what of him? He's dead. He can't complain. He had his chance and in modern parlance. Blew it. And to me, I think really the fascinating thing is that this is not like a regular thing for them. It's not like, oh, every year they have to like lure somebody there and, you know, set them on fire. This is a stopgap for what they perceived as uh, a loss of crops and Mm -hmm. then a need to appease a god that they feel might have like things might have fallen off a bit. Right. And it's kind of this amazing journey for you the viewer as well in piecing that all together because you know he gets there to the inn on on the island and wants to have a meal and asks for like fruit for dessert and you know everything they're serving him is canned and comes from tins and he just doesn't understand it because they're known for their fruit and she just kind of tells him oh you know it all gets sold to the mainland we don't get to keep any of it ourselves and this and that and really what it is is they don't have it it's not like at first you think are they just like not letting him have the good stuff because he's that's what i thought originally because i didn't know so i Mm -hmm. thought oh is that what it is one of the things it made me think about is sort of a a local place here that isn't it's not like i'm saying (laughs) like it's it's Wicker Man-esque or that it's like Summer's Isle. But there's this really small, like, rocky outcrop in the Chesapeake Bay called Smith Island. Mm-hmm. And people do actually still live there. And They, they do have... occasionally put people in giant statues and burn them. But that's not related to the crops at all. No, that's just for fun. That's just what, it, that's no, what they, they don't. do. Please, please don't be mad at a Smith <laughs> Island. It's one of the things that they're famous for on Smith Island, Maryland, which is, in fact, the Maryland state dessert, is Smith Island cake. Mm. And if you can imagine, like, basically a cake of a bazillion layers where each layer is like, you know, the the thickness of like a crepe with like icing in between where you cut into it and you look at it Mm -hmm. and it's just like layers, layers all the way down. And someone I know went with her family and thought we're going to have a Smith Island vacation. And like, you can take a boat, a ferry boat out there and they have like a bed and breakfast and an inn. And she thought, Oh, they're famous for this cake. And you got to tell them in advance if you want one, because it takes a long time to assemble it. And she said they got there and they ended up cutting their vacation short because it was actually kind of miserable to be on Smith Island because nothing grows there. It's all just like rocks and like houses and the hotel so for any meal that you want to eat everything is coming out of a tin including like milk it's like powdered milk that's been like reconstituted it is bizarre they like don't grow like anything and she milk. learned the secret ingredient to smith island cake is boxed cake mix because they don't have anything fresh 
on Smith Island. So really, it's just the skill of assembling it as opposed to like these amazing ingredients that are on the island. But it's kind of fascinating, this thought of people have this vision of like island life of being like sort of this idyllic thing and quite frankly in a lot of set like a lot of places it's harsh and unforgiving and Mm -hmm. nothing grows and by all accounts in the movie that's what this island was too before lord summer isle's ancestors like his grandfather or Mm -hmm. great-grandfather i can't remember came there and figured out how to crossbreed plants that grew in like the rocky soil And so it's sort of really interesting because the story that he's weaving here, that actually does make sense. There's science to it. And he's just sort of saying, oh, they like the old religion and it was easier to explain this all to them by talking about gods and this and that than it was to explain science. So so what of it if they like to dance around naked in the streets? You know, that's fine. And, you know, the way we came out of this was saying how much we hated howie and how much we mm. really appreciated everyone on the island except obviously yes they do engage in human sacrifice just like a little bit and not all the time do we condone that not entirely no but it is a very nice island and if you were part of that community i don't think you would wind up in the wicker man so you know you know that's that's something to consider yeah if you're gonna move there and and another thing that we loved almost immediately that a lifetime of horror fandom for both of us did not prepare us for because i just never we never encountered this fact Mm. is that this was a musical no one told us i never heard that wicker man was a musical and the thing is it's interesting that that came up during the making of the movie because robin hardy the director actually is on record as having surprised the cast one day when they were midway through filming by telling them that they were making a musical. It's like, <laughs> this is not like a thing that later people said, oh, you know, they used a lot of music. It's kind of like a musical. No, he conceived it as that, where the songs... And the thing is, that's what distinctly is like a musical. Like, okay, do characters in this burst into song rather than speak and carry the plot forward? No, it's not like that. But... The movie does use consistently throughout a number of songs that do, in essence, carry the plot forward, reveal a little bit more about the the culture. It's as close to the most traditional version of the musical as you think of without actually going so far as to have the characters engage in song as a way of expressing their thoughts and feelings Mm. the way a lot of musicals do. I mean, it's folk music. but And and some of it was traditional, but a lot of it was not and written originally for the film. And uh, it's just fantastic. I think we... a lot of it's blurring for me now because I've only seen it the one time. But mm. I think when we were watching it, we were both saying how like almost every song was really pleasant too. It was, a, it was like great music, yeah. great lyrics. It it really added a lot, and I was just so delighted to find this bizarre angle to it that I didn't know that it was a musical. Also, unlike any other musical you've probably seen, I guess unless you've you know seen Hair. There is also a very, very nude musical number where you have the innkeeper's daughter who is a witch. I mean, really, everybody's kind of a witch, but she is like dancing like very powerfully and very nudely throughout her room, like banging on furniture and walls and things, trying to bewitch the cop in the room next door. And it's 
kind of awesome. Like, and it's really powerful. Britt Eklund, which a lot of people are fans of Britt Eklund from that era would like, except, of course, like a lot of things, totally uh, body double for Britt Eklund, which she wasn't happy with, apparently, as mm. very few people would. Um, sometimes for different reasons. Sometimes they're unhappy with it when they find out it's there at all. Sometimes they're unhappy when they feel the body double doesn't live up to their own you know, <laughs> expectations of themselves. But um, it's also an interesting sequence because her dance is one of the only times, might be the only time in the movie where I got a distinct sense that there was something genuinely supernatural happening. Mm. That's something we also often talk about in these movies. Like, is the movie existing in a world of fantasy where there's actual magic or power? Or is it... And for the most part in this movie, this is a cop from England who's been tricked by a very savvy, seemingly to him, more primitive group of people who are using him to, you know, fulfill their religious beliefs, which could be based entirely, like anything else, on fantasy and, you know, supposition about the existence of deities... Except that when you watch that sequence and she dances, his reactions suggest uh, like an attempt to resist and not entirely be able to resist some sort of force that's compelling mm -hmm. him. And of course, you could also then reason like you could in a lot of stories like this, that perhaps he's simply falling victim to like a psychosis like he's starting to believe it and therefore it's affecting him except he's such a devout but then maybe that's the thing he's a devout believer in his religion that tells us he's someone who's susceptible to belief and faith and the idea that there are greater forces than him mm -hmm. which means he might be susceptible to a belief in magic they also could have dosed his food with a psychotropic yeah, or something. Right, right. So there's plenty of real world reasons why this could be happening. Yeah. And we don't get any payoff at the end to tell us whether or not what they're doing is going to work. Like his whole argument by the end, besides the fact that they're committing murder, which, eh, true, you know. I mean, it's a very nice island. But anyway. It um, seems like a great place to live. It really does. Everybody knows everybody. And they're all very supportive of each other. The murders don't happen that often is what we're saying. Very and rarely. They're never residents. No. They don't have murders there. So if you move there, you'll be all right. Yeah. But besides that, he keeps arguing. It's like, you know, this is not true. This isn't going to happen. Which, by the way, one of many things. I know the problem we're having now that often bothers me is it's been so long between the time we watch the thing and we're talking about the thing that I feel like I'm forgetting stuff I wanted to say at the time. Mm. But one of the things I really was impressed by was what an incredibly aware and nuanced condemnation of Christianity and organized religion this was, mm -hmm. which we can always use more of. Just the sheer hypocrisy of someone representing Christianity yelling at them that their thing isn't real because you're not really praying to a God because this isn't going to work. And it's like, let me tell you something, Howie. You know, Don't pray they... all you like while the fire hits you because... And they even know. tell him that basically because he's so devout, really they're doing him a favor by allowing <laughs> him to be a martyr for his I, cause. I think it's Lee, isn't it? Who mm -hmm. says like, you know, well, in that case, this is going to go really well for you because you'll be with your God and everything will be awesome. It's win-win, really. <laughs> it's, it's such a beautiful moment because you know he doesn't believe it for a second, but it's like, well, you know, if this is your thing then this oh, is a good... God. And we haven't even mentioned, and we should, 
the reason that he is the perfect mark for them for this or what they need in order to fulfill this ritual. It's that he's a man of the law, that he is a devout believer in Christianity. Like he has a very strong moral compass. And that moral compass also means that he's still a virgin. Oh, that's right. It's I actually, actually that part. it's a very rare time in cinema history where you have a male virgin sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I honestly can't think of any other movie. Maybe where they somebody have that. listening will be able to tell us if that's a plot point and mm. something else. I'd be interested. And to me, that was one of the things that I found most fascinating because when you think of virgin sacrifice, you always think of like a woman in the flowing white robe yeah. gown who's tied to a rock or thrown to a bear or whatever. The one with flowing white robe who's taken it off is Britt Eklund who's trying to drag him out, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, and seduce him. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was a really fascinating little like plot point mm-hmm. there. That that was also one of like the check boxes they had to check off, and it took them forever. They said like they researched the heck out of him before mm-hmm. they drove him to come there, and to me, that's just. I mean, I hesitate to say it's super cool, but it's super cool because like it's a plot point that I, I just don't remember seeing or hearing anywhere else and so to me that makes it just like so unique in what it is it's also i i just a random thing but i should mention because i know if there's anybody listening to this that's a huge fan certainly they'll be way ahead of us on everything and you know uh, have heard everything before which is fine we watched what i presume is the like traditional theatrical cut there apparently if i if I got my research correct, which I might not 100%, I believe there are now three cuts of this movie. Mm. And there's like songs, there's like a song added or songs added, or there's like bits and pieces. Everything I read about the most extended of the three cuts suggested to me that we're not really missing much in terms of, I mean, first of all, this is the movie that everybody has been enamored of for decades. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is the version that's on so, Shutter right now that right. we watched. So it's not like we lost out because we experienced the same thing everybody experienced. Mm-hmm. But as far as getting the extra stuff, I didn't see anything described that suggested to me it would drastically alter our perception of the film. And mm-hmm. I might be interested in seeing it, but I didn't think, you know, that, that doesn't matter enough to change our opinion about anything. But I just figured I'd mention, so yeah, we watched the Shutter one, which I think is just the theatrical one. It's not, there's like a director's cut. There's one called the final cut. And um, it's considered the most complete version at this point. Um, but that doesn't really matter all that much. Not and really. This, this is a movie that has an incredible reputation. And this is one of those cases where I feel like it was pretty much all deserved. Oh, yeah. It's atmospheric. It's visually very lush. It's a great location with just amazing, look, you know, amazing shooting throughout. And the music is great. Everybody in it is superb. And uh, I could totally understand. And like as the movie gets closer and closer to the ending, which again, like we knew where it was going. So there's almost a sort of weight of it building as you get closer and closer because you know what's going to happen in a way it's almost like that's its own kind of experience is knowing it's going to happen you know that like from the moment the movie begins which anybody who's mm-hmm. a fan would know upon re-watching 
you know that this this like it's doomed for him. The moment he gets off of that thing and goes on the island, it's like the clock's ticking. And then you get to the end, and it is a gorgeous final shot with the sun and you know the the wicker man falling apart and everything. It's beautiful. Yeah. I believe in the life eternal, as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. You will not only have life eternal, but you will sit with the saints among the elect. Come. It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. And in in a way, if I wanted to go really deep and like media literacy kind of stuff i could almost argue that with the wicker man falling apart and like the final shot focusing on the sun you could almost interpret it as an indication that their prayers will be answered because it sort of reflects an almost cosmic connection there that Mm -hmm. like yes the sun is shining upon their efforts and the, the waning light of the day and it's like is this real you know is there is this really gonna work will they be okay for the next season maybe but it's just, um, it's beautiful. And and the Wicker Man itself, if you're talking about like icons and horror icons in film, it's just an extraordinary piece of work for set design. And it, it says a lot that when they do make the remake, which we'll talk about next, mm-hmm. the Wicker Man is pretty much unaltered. I mean, it looks a little different by virtue of just being built in the 2000s, but it basically looks exactly the same. Yeah. They don't They don't change anything about the Wicker Man. And it's like, because it's fine. And I think we'll we'll launch into the the remake here. But I think really the biggest difference, and it's probably what we're going to focus on talking about the most, is that the mood in the original, I've said it already, is just so joyful. Like, it is one of the more joyful horror movies I've ever watched. Like, there's actually not that much dread in it or fear it's you know probably because you really just don't like the guy who is doing the investigating he's just kicking down doors and deciding he's right and you're like you know what insulting people yeah at a certain point you're like just let them do what they're gonna do but you're supposed to be horrified because as a viewer you're supposed to think well what they're gonna do is child sacrifice but i also am not sure how horrified we're supposed to be i mean like the fact that he is so off-putting, mm. it's like there's something to be said for the idea. Like you said also about there's there's something very potent about when this movie was made. Yeah. Coming out of like the Summer of Love and Flower Children and the hippie movement. Oh, yeah. And, it's a real screw you to authority. Yes. And, and it's very positive toward the idea of a pagan lifestyle as a better lifestyle. And yes, there are horrible things happening. But I think the the balance is toward he's he's the monster, not them. Mm-hmm. Um, sacrifice, <laughs> you know, included. But still, he's he's a horrible, horrible human being. Yeah. So you kind of juxtapose that joy and that feeling of like connected to Earth and just being very content in your ways and your lifestyle. And then you kind of compare that to where we end up in the remake, um, which is a remarkably different 
feeling of a movie. And not as bad of a movie as I think it has a reputation for being. Here's the thing. I never saw it before. I knew that there was a certain aspect of it that like people over the years online have pulled things out from it to turn them into memes or gifs or whatever. Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! I don't have my eyes! My eyes! Ah! Ah! <laughs> and when I watched it, and this will probably sound a bit like blasphemy for the good word to use too, for people <laughs> that are fans of the original, but I enjoyed the remake almost as much as I enjoyed the original. I definitely think it's an inferior film to the original, mm -hmm. but I enjoyed it. And I, and also I've seen a lot of people. And I mean, obviously I've seen my share of Nick Cage being weird in plenty of movies. And I know that a lot of people have talked about particularly his performance in this is one of their favorite examples of him being wildly over the top. And until a few things at the very end, where I would agree he's over the top, except I still feel that the character is justified in that behavior. I don't think he's crazily excessive in this at all. And as opposed to Howie, I found Nick Cage's character of Edward Malice to be very sympathetic overall. And I like him. That's, yeah. that's the other thing, too. One of the things this movie does, though, is it flips the script on where I feel, at least for us, our sympathies lay mm -hmm. because the island now in the remake does not feel like a comfortable place. Well, certainly not if you're a man. It's not a comfortable place to be. And he seems to be very justified in a lot of his fear and anger and concern throughout. I mean, I will say, too, it doesn't really feel like a comfortable place to be, period. Like, there's no color. Everything is very drab everyone is dressing like they're a historical reenactor at colonial williamsburg like it's all very like basic cloth like frocks and things and the mood there is just not the same let me step back and just say that in this one um still the same basic premise of him getting a letter except that in this case there are a few key changes mm. that i also enjoyed like the fact that apparently in this case, the person writing him about the missing girl is a former fiance who had grown up there, moved to like, you know, the regular world, then moved back. And now he's hearing from her for the first time in years. And it's no big shock, really, when one of the movie's apparent twists is that the girl she's telling him she needs to find her daughter is, in fact, also his daughter. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so, also transplanted the story into the U.S. Right. So and this is like an island off the coast of Washington State, and he's based in California. They also, for some inexplicable reason, made it Summer's Isle instead of Summer Isle, but whatever. But there's a personal stake and connection in this, which makes the ending, which doesn't really change, all the more horrific in this one because now it's his own daughter that participates in things when the Wicker Man finally shows up. But the other thing that's huge, also Angela Balamente doing the music, so a little Twin Peaks, which is good. Feels very Twin Peaksy. Um, and it is very surreal, this movie, much more so than the original. Mm -hmm. And But the main change in this is that the island now is a matriarchy, that rather than a pagan culture that's just shared by all, it is predominantly women. They have a sort of um, sisterhood. They refer to each other as sisters, a coven-like quality to it. 
the men there are either workers or not of much note and and they never talk there is a significant implication that they have engaged in genetic and other experimentation to try to prevent births of boys and otherwise uh depress the abilities or intelligence or even you know presence of men and as opposed to just crops, they're notable for their honey and the bees that they raise there, which, of course, leads to one of the movie's most infamous uh, bits as far as gifts are concerned, apparently. I mean, it is one of really the more over-the-top, you know, scenes in it the is. thing. Because naturally, of course, our uh, our cop protagonist here is deathly allergic to bees, Use and he EpiPen. just like rides a stolen bicycle right into a field full of beehives. Oh, that's another thing too, because one thing we found out only after the fact is that we watched the wrong one. Now, in this case, we watched a version of the movie that had an alternate ending. Yeah, so I was trying to watch the regular version of the film. Uh, we certainly threw off the algorithm for my recommendations by actually purchasing a digital copy of this film. And there are two versions available, which is the theatrical cut and the unrated version. And I very specifically wanted the theatrical cut because it has a completely different ending than the unrated version. And honestly, I think the ending of the theatrical cut is stronger. I agree. Than the ending. And so we get to the end and I'm like, wait, that's not the ending of the movie. And then we had to look up yeah. the theatrical one online, which led to me getting to send a, a terse little email to Google saying, hey, this isn't the Wicker Man yeah. I ordered. And they refunded me for it. So <laughs> otherwise, though, what's interesting about this movie is how much of the original is preserved. There's mm. the, the music's not there. It's not a musical. That would have been interesting for that. Well, that um, certainly would have infused it with more joy. Um, what there is, is a great deal of the dialogue is preserved. That was one thing I was really kind of surprised pleasantly so by, is that having just watched the original, they mm. carry a lot of dialogue over word for word. Ellen Burstyn basically is playing the Christopher Lee part as the leader of the island. And a lot of her dialogue in particular carries over directly I, I can't think of a lot of other things to say. I mean, there, there's a lot more weirdness to this. There's a lot more leaning into deliberately horror-like imagery, like the twins and some stuff in this that feels like it's calculated to be kind of frightening looking. And very witchy. There's and a fair number more, of twins on this island. Yeah, because that also feels like it's suggesting that sort of x files genetic experimentation kind of thing we see the one point like the the jars that have like embryos in them and everything mm -hmm. that so there's this idea that like like bees where you're taking care of a colony and and raising right. creatures they seem to have extended some of that expertise to humanity itself which has resulted in the culture they have they're a much more sinister culture there and definitely not an island that you'd feel comfortable being on like you would on the original <laughs> Well, I probably would be okay. If You'd I probably went. be okay. Although yeah. it just doesn't seem like a very happy place to be. But also part of that feels like what they're putting on for him as well um, to make him feel like he can't trust anyone. They actually like waterboard him at one point, like trap him in a flooded crypt overnight. They torture him a lot more early yeah, on. But there's also, he's very pushy. He's not nearly as judgmental. This is the thing. For most of this film, I really liked him in a way I didn't like Howie at all. Mm. Howie, I think, is a completely irredeemable character. 
Malice, I feel, is a is a misled kind of character, and a, and a typical like Nick Cage kind of sad sack. He's got issues. He's lost. That's the other thing. He's, there's that incident that takes place that we see flashbacks to where there's the woman and the girl in the car and they were hit by a truck and they never do explain in the movie whether that was connected to the island, whether that was some initial attempt to hook him. It's very unclear what that even was. That yeah, incident. that basically he's been on extended leave from work because he was injured and also like traumatized in a like fiery highway crash when he was a motorcycle officer. We do see, however, that one of the cops that's one of his colleagues is also someone from the island. And like, she's the one who's been keeping tabs on him. They've been like, you know, his fiance and all that. The same thing as the original. They've been, they've researched and evidently they send people out women from the island on a regular basis to set up connections with men that will then enable them to potentially pull them back should they need them for a sacrifice in the future they've mm -hmm. made these connections in the real world which to me i think actually it's super sinister but it's also one of the more fascinating like constructs that they came up with because in the original it's really an anomaly this bad crop year it's something that happened and then they had to scramble and be like you know we haven't had to do this and who knows how long i mean mm -hmm. this is not something they do on a regular basis and in the remake not either something they do on a regular basis necessarily but in the original they really had to like research find the guy that ticked the boxes fit the bill the difference here in the remake is that every single year they're sending like women of childbearing age back out into the world off the island in order to make these connections with people in order to very carefully essentially choose someone who's in that type of field um like a detective or a police officer or somebody who would come in get pregnant come back to the island and like you need to have a whole bunch just to make sure you have enough girls basically so they do this on a regular basis. And in fact, he sees a bunch of pregnant women like walking down a path while he's on the island that there are always a whole bunch of women who are going to be giving birth. And also they've taken the virgin part off the table in For this sure. plot. Like that's not a factor. Well, I mean, it can't be because they've made the connection one of progeny rather than virginity. That you're connected now to this island by virtue of having fathered a child that lives there, who's then going to be the one quote unquote sacrifice that you have to save. And really you get the full revelation of the cyclical nature of all of it with the original theatrical ending that you like better, which mm -hmm. definitely works better where you get cameos from uh, James Franco and uh, John Ritter's son, Jason is the two that they're, was it Lily Sobieski and, right. and another one? They're like uh, the fiance. I forget what her name is. Uh, Kate Bean is her real name willow uh she's like taking her out for what looks like probably lily sobieski's character looks like she might be this is her first time maybe going out and yeah she's like coaching her on like how to hook a guy which really doesn't take much Not she's really. like she just tells basically just tell him you want to go back to his place <laughs> it's like that's enough and and <laughs> but like we find out franco's a cop right so it's like yes. they're they're aiming right for the guys they need for this continuing mm -hmm. effort right so it's sort of a situation where they don't necessarily do this every year, but they need to have a girl of the right age connected to a, a guy who's also a cop on the mainland at any given time 
so that if they have a bad harvest year, they're ready for the next mm-hmm. year. And it turns out Willow, who was his former fiance and mother of his child, is also the daughter of Ellen Burstyn, who's like the queen that, of of the hive. Yeah. If anything, I would say that's, I mean, it doesn't matter. But if anything, I would say that's like one step that doesn't need to be there. Like there's mm-hmm. so, it gets to the point where there's so much connection. Like rather than make it as random as it was in the original, they're makes like, you know what would be even better is that if it's his own daughter and then you know what would be interesting is if it's the daughter of the leader and you find that at the end. Except the daughter part makes for an interesting twist that adds a new reason for him to be motivated and, like I said, a new level of horror when it's his own daughter that lights the thing at the end. But finding out that his fiance and therefore his daughter is like the granddaughter of Ellen Burstyn, the leader, doesn't really add anything. It just seems like an unnecessary extra connection. But it's like all of a sudden they were thinking of Let's make everything connected and meaningful. And they kind of just kept going with it. (laughs) But I I don't think it hurts it. I just don't think it matters. I mean, I guess really what they're going for is that showing you sort of in the last moments of the film that Willow is far more connected to this life than she let on. Although we also noted that she looks visibly uh, shaken by the experience at the end it does not look like she's a hundred percent on board not that she's gonna like run and stop it but she doesn't look totally happy with the idea mm-hmm. and it could be that like if you're out enough maybe the idea was maybe she developed feelings for him it wasn't enough to stop it but it it reminds me of um twilight zone with roddy mcdowell people are like all over where they land on the, and then the, he he's in the zoo yes. they build the house yeah, for him. Yeah. looks like the zoo and they're all standing out there watching and Susan Oliver is the the blonde girl that he's like attracted to. And he's like, I will see you again. And she's like, yeah, and they're like shuffling her out of the door right away. And then at the end, when you see everybody standing there, she actually runs off and one of them looks like, you know, what's she doing running off? And it's kind of a weird nuanced character moment in the Twilight Zone that is never going to be intended to continue the story at mm. all. But like for my entire life, I've always watched that one and thought, you know, there's a good chance, despite the way all Twilight Zone scene then you figure this is what it's going to be. I always thought in my own head, she might wind up helping him escape because she's not happy with this whole thing. She doesn't like it. She likes him. She knows he's a person. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of the vibe I was getting at the end of the Nicolas Cage one. She, I mean, didn't didn't help him because he's dead. Very much but, so. Also burned alive. Burned alive. But she looked like she wasn't entirely on board, which makes you wonder, is it ever going to be possible that this cycle could be broken? That someone might, you know, say this is enough. I mean, it seems too like she was a bit of an anomaly and that she stayed away from this colony long enough to actually be his fiance, Mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody he just like dated for a little while who then disappeared. They don't really say it, but maybe she genuinely got so like into him that they had to like pull her back back in. Maybe. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible. Which Um, I would never think, I would never think anything of like a cycle ending in the original because the original island is just a really nice place to be. It's like, why would you, why would you want to leave? It's awesome. So, you know. This one, not so much. I think the remake, not as bad as people make it out to be. Some interesting ideas. I sometimes feel like when a 
beloved film is remade, it's difficult to live up to most of the time. I agree that some of what Cage does is a little over the top, but I think nothing out of expectation of his usual performances. I thought he was fine. I feel that most of the time what the character is going through could be argued as justification for him getting really worked up. Mm -hmm. Yes, at the end, it starts to get almost comical where he's punching a few people in the face more than you'd expect. But also when he starts to think the entire world is caving in around him and his own daughter is in danger, I don't really discount that as that could be something you'd do. You know, that that might happen. I don't think anything he does in the movie feels out of line and crazy. I think people have blown that out of proportion. And I enjoyed it. And if I'd seen this movie in isolation and never knew anything about the original or that the original is a classic, I think I might like it even more. I think it was a very nicely made horror movie Mm. with a good payoff. And I think the only problem with it is its predecessor is that much better. Yeah, and, for sure. And really an excellent piece of work. But and I, it's a musical. This one's not a musical. Yeah, so, but I like know. both of them. Mm-hmm. I like both of them. I'd say, unlike a lot of other episodes where we've done an original and a remake, where we're like, eh, you can skip the remake. I think, having now seen the original for the first time, by all means, 100% recommend you see it. And if you haven't seen the remake, I think it's worth watching as like a comparative point. Just make sure you see the original theatrical ending and not the unrated one. Yeah, which I don't know. We don't have any real way to point people to it because Google Play doesn't have their act together. Yeah, but I mean, maybe maybe they'll fix it after my strongly worded letter about the Wicker Man. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie Bielotowski and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLitovsky, that's NBLit of Sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were The Wicker Man, 1973, and The Wicker Man, 2006. What? Fools in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com.